Okay. So, so the reason why you see five versus six, it depends on the author's viewpoint on whether or not they see uh, Lamentations as a, a prophetic book or a book of poetry. Okay. So um, let's see, let's go back here to our slide here. I think we read that. Okay. So let's go into the book here. So I read the first sentence. So the second sentence says, the time of the United Monarchy um, would be considered Israel's golden age of literature. These days of peace and the reigns of David and Solomon found in the foundational books of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings were the most productive in the writing of the songs and poems that became such an important part of the life of Israel. So during this time, um, during this time, um, they considered this the golden age because this was a time of peace. Um, they were um, uh, basically obeying the, the word of God, adhering to the word of God. Everything was good. So they believed that during this time here that the poetry books were, were written through the period of from second King, I mean, uh, second Samuel, the first Kings, these books kind of fit in. And so we kind of see that here. Um, kind of see that here on the on the timeline. The only objection would be the book of Job, in which we're going to talk about today. The book of Job was written. Uh, they believe that the book of Job, let me not be dogmatic, uh, was written um, in the period of the monarchy period, but it the um, the timeline or the time period of Job believed that it took place during the time of Genesis between Genesis chapter eight and 11. Okay, so we're gonna talk about that later, but they were all written during the, the monarchy period. Okay, um, let's see here. And so another thing I wanted to point out in Benware, the first sentence there says poetry is found everywhere in the Old Testament scripture. Um, but when we really do a deep dive into scripture, we will find out that poetry is everywhere in scripture, um, not just the Old Testament. When we did a study on Mark and we talked about the various literary styles of Mark and how he wrote in inclusios and, and chiasms and things of that sort, that is a type of Hebraic writing of poetry. Um, and so you'll see that in, in Mark's writing, you'll see it in um, in Paul's writing, there's a term that we're going to be introduced today called prose. Um, uh, Paul, he kind of writes in that type of literary style as well. And so uh, poetry um, is found in at just about um, everywhere in, in, um, in, the, in the scriptures. But when it comes to the percentage of each book having poetry, of course, these books, the uh, five or six books, that we have, have the greater percentage of poetry. So that's why they are classified as poetry, okay? So I hope you guys under, understood that, that statement I just made. So it really, when it comes to genre, um, the types of literature, it, it depends on the amount of that characteristic. So if the book is a, a majority of historical books, but you see prophecy in it, um, but the percentage is, uh, leans more towards historical, so it's going to be classified as a historical book. And one thing that as we continue to go deeper um, in our studies, we're going to find out that not just not one book have one genre. So you're not going to find a, find a pure uh, book that is filled with prophecy as far as the literary style or a full book that is filled with poetic language. You're going to see that uh, a lot of these books have a secondary genre and even a tertiary genre or a third level of uh, genre um, in that book. OK, so I wanted to definitely uh, make sure you guys keep that in mind when trying to figure out the genre of the book. And then once you begin to drill down and understand how to decipher in your reading about certain genres, that will help with your level of interpretation because genres have different rules of interpretation. For instance, who remembers the rule for history when you're interpreting history? History gives us what, I should say? It moves the timeline. 
Well, uh, that's foundation, foundational history. But in general, when, we, when we're looking at um, history, what is it giving us? Like background info. Right. So it's just really giving us a historical record or background information. So historical record is what I need to remember. It's that those two words. Got right, right. And so necessarily when we look at historical, it's just giving us a record of events, but history is not necessarily given to instruct us like the genre of epistles are are there to instruct us, okay? So there's different rules of interpretation as we continue on our journey of learning about scriptures. We're gonna um, get deeper in looking at genre analysis and interpretive analysis and all that stuff. So, um, so just wanted to just throw that out there, okay? So let me see here. And so when it comes to, um, I said that all of the poetry books were written during the monarchy period. So that means when we look at the timeline here, that means that 22 of 39 books were written during the monarchy period. So that allows us to know or to, to understand that it's important to understand the historical background that is going on during the monarchy period, during the... Um, of course, during the first five books is the formation period. The next books um, is uh, the next two books, uh, Joshua and Judges and parts of Samuel is the, the theocracy. And then we get into the monarchy period and then restoration. So a lot of our, our books that we have is written during the, the monarchy period. And so it's really important for us to understand the, mo the monarchy period and the divisions of the monarchy period. Who remembers the divisions, uh, how monarchy is broken down, broken down to three divisions. What are the three divisions? Is that the, the prophet kings? Go ahead, sorry, go ahead, Rick. United, divided and single kingdoms. That's right. That's right. They're broken down into united, divided, and single kingdom. Okay, and so it's important to, to know that because that that tell that helps you with your interpretation of scriptures and what was going on during that time. And so I'm gonna keep drilling y'all, so you know it becomes uh, kind of commonplace for you all. So thank you for that for that answer there. Okay, um, let's see here. Let's go to. Let's go to the special paragraph under the first one. It starts with reflective in this literature. So when we look at um, uh, historical historical narrative, like I said, it gives you a record of history of his, um, of history or events. And then in the in this paragraph here, it says reflected in this literature are problems, experience, beliefs, philosophies, and attitudes of the Israelites. Such was a wide variety of interests are expressed that these writings well nigh have a universal appeal. So I'm gonna start right there. So when it comes to poetry, the theme of poetry is to give, uh, uh, give us a record of the attitudes and the philosophy of the Israelites, okay? So that's something to really keep in mind when looking at the genre of poetry is giving them their expression and their feelings about certain situations that are going on. They will express it in poetry form. And so um, the second part of it says that these writings have a universal appeal. And so what that means is that um, the trials and tribulations that, that Israel went through is not necessarily just um, something you go through because you are a Hebrew. Um, many of uh, mankind goes through trials and tribulations in general. So it does appeal to mankind or those who are not, not of God. It, it will appeal to them because they can kind of relate to uh, losing a child or being chastened after or being uh, ridiculed and persecuted. These are that, things of that nature. They have, they have, they can relate to that, okay? So it does have a universal um, appeal. You don't have to be a Hebrew to say, obey your father and mother, 
it's just a general rule. It's just a, a universal rule that, that exists out there, okay? So um, the next sense that the frequent use by these common people throughout the world and the voluminous literature written since the Old Testament times indicate that the poetical books deal with the problems and truths familiar to all mankind, okay? So that's what I was just um, explaining uh, right there, okay? Um, and so when we're looking at, at poetry, um, you'll see in, in scripture when, when David is going through certain things, like when he was dealing with Bathsheba and the fact that um, he lost his child, um, it was, um, the baby was stillborn, and he, he begins to write about it. You'll read it in the book of Psalms about how he felt about the whole situation when he was being chased down by Saul and he was hiding in a cave. And um, he was writing about his emotions on how he felt during that period of time and how when he was on the run, he had the yearning to be in the presence of God because he had to go to a temple to be in God's presence. So he writes about it. And so, uh, so that's kind of the connection when we're looking at the foundational books especially with, like I said, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, there are connections in the book of Psalms that kind of give us the background of why, why did David write this psalm? And David is not, what we're going to find out next week is David did not write all the psalms. Um, there's one psalm that Moses wrote, <laughs> and it's Psalms 90, and that connects to Exodus 15 on how they were crossing over. So it gives us the emotion or the, the viewpoint of how they felt uh, crossing over the Jordan River, okay? Um, so any questions about that or any comments about what I just said there about the first section of intro to Hebrew poetry? All right, we'll keep on moving then. So the second part, um, it says the poetical books, uh, we're under the books of Hebrew poetry. So the poetical books do indeed speak to issues and needs and experienced by believers um, then and now. So let's kind of look at um, each summary of the book um, to see what is what's going on here. And so when we look at, let me hop down here, there we go. Um, when we look at the, the books of Hebrew pro poetry, we're going to look at Job. So Job wrestles with the problem of suffering that righteous people endure in this life. Um, Psalms basically are songs of praise, though they express a full range uh, of human of human emotions, okay? The book of um, Proverbs provides valuable insights into all realms of life and gives needed instruction on living wisely. And then Ecclesiastes approaches the matter of wise living from a unique point of view, but makes clear that apart from a right relationship with God, life is empty. Song of Solomon is a dramatic poem that expresses the joys and dangers of human love. Um, and then Lamentations is an expression of deep human grief coupled with the trust in a covenant-keeping God, okay? So this is kind of the summary of each book. And you see it's, it's a very um, expressive, emotional-type literature, okay? And so, and it does hit on um, all kind of um, all types of areas in our lives from human love, from dealing with uh, trust and living a wise life and things of that sort. So it gives us kind of a range of topics um, that, that uh, we can look at. And then when it comes to the types of Hebrew poetry, um, there are different ways of categor categorizing Hebrew poetry, uh, but the following five types are the main kinds. So these are just five, but there's so many different types of categories, but we're going to just look at five. Um, so lyric poems are so named because they were originally designed to be accompanied by music. So that's what we see in a lot of the Psalms. Um, uh, David was the first to bring music into worship and dancing into worship. And so a lot of the, the, uh, the books or the lyric, lyrical um, books in, in, in Psalms are uh, accompanied by music. Um, you got didactic poetry intended to teach people to observe and evaluate life. The mind rather than the emotions was appealed to. Uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes will be considered 
didactic, okay? Because it has a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, things to observe about life, okay? Uh, prophetic poems are not found in these six books of poetry, but rather in Isaiah and some other places. But you will see a hint of uh, prophecy in some of these books. Um, so the elegaic um, uh, poetry um, records human grief and sorrow. Uh, the Lamentations of Jeremiah fit into this category. Um, Lamentations is also uh, considered prophetic in a sense. Okay. And then the last one is dramatic poems such as Job and the Song of Solomon conveys ideas and truth through dialogue and monologue, much like modern um, plays. Okay. So uh, there's one point I wanted to make. Okay. Yeah. So when it comes to didactic, didactic just means teaching. So teaching poetry, um, even though it's, it, it is it's there to instruct in teaching, but we as the church must be careful when lifting teaching points uh, from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes uh, because of the level of revelation that was given during that time. Whereas the church, we have a higher level of revelation that was given to us. So we have a better way of looking at different situations and, uh, and things that go on in our lives. Uh, the ways that, that Jesus teaches us and uh, that are uh, communicated through Paul. And so that's something that we um, must be must be mindful of, okay? Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, so when it comes to Hebrew poetry, um, this says the next part, when we look at parallelism, it says, unlike poems and verses that we must be familiar with, Hebrew poetry is not achieved through rhyme. The basic structure of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. So with the, of course, Western, Western society that we live in, our poetry, we have that rhyme and rhythm um, that he says that Hebrew poetry is more on parallelism. We're gonna look at various types of parallelism, but it does have rhyme and rhythm. We just don't see it because we have an English version. So we're not gonna see the rhyme and, and rhythm of, of, uh, of the poetry. But when, when you look at the original Hebrew scripture, you're gonna see the rhyme and rhythm, okay? So there, it, there's, there wasn't, uh, his statement there wasn't fully true right there. Um, and so the next paragraph, it says that we do not find uh, any emphasis at, at all on rhyme, on rhyme and very little uh, meter compared to that of the languages. The principal feature of that is parallelism the idea or the second or following lines of a strophe somehow uh, parallel the thought of the first. Um, so when we begin to, while we're studying Hebrew poetry, the genre of Hebrew poetry is very technical, as you see. It's very technical. It's very, it's so much different from uh, looking at uh, history. It's just looking at a count of an event and things of that sort. Um, but when it comes to poetry, you got, it's just like an English class. I, I, I did not like English class growing up because of this, all the technical things you got to learn about the English language and all this con uh, construction uh, of sentences and all that stuff. It just zoned me out. And so when it comes to poetry, um, you have to apply that same, that same method. So please don't be zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> when looking at this section here on um, on Hebrew poetry, okay? And so um, in the paragraph here, it says, in the structure of um, Hebrew poetry, a statement is made in the first line, then the second line repeats or expands or contrasts that thought. So that is the definition of parallelism. So if you have not underlined that or highlighted that sentence, please do, because this is the um, definition of parallelism, and we're going to see it a lot. I'm going to give you some examples of parallelism. So um, one, one example is Psalms 1 and 1. Let's just start there. It says, blessed is the man who walketh in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of the, of the scornful. So the first line, first line is blessed in the man 
who walketh in the counsel of the ungodly. And then expands, it expands a little more, little bit more. It says, nor, uh, or contrast, it says, nor sits in the seat of the, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So that is parallelism right there. So you got what the, what the godly does and then what the ungodly do. Okay. So you got two lines right there. Okay. So that's an example of, of parallelism right there. Okay. So let's look at the kinds of parallelism. So, and then we got examples to show you all, okay? So the synonymous parallelism, the second line repeats the same thought as the first line um, in very similar or, or identical terms. So here's an example. The earth, of the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the first line. The second line is the world and those that dwell therein. That's basically saying the first thing that the, uh, the first line says. Uh, so it's saying the same thing that the first line says, but it's just giving you a different feel on it. Okay, so the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and then the world and those that dwell therein. It's basically saying the same thing, but it's saying it in a different in a different way. Okay, when it comes to the antithetic, um, the second line contrasts the idea of the first line. Okay, so the first line here in Psalms one and six it says, "For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked would perish. So you got the first line that talks about the righteous and then the second line that talks about the wicked. And so it's a contrasting thoughts that are going on. And so the second example is for the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. So the first line you got talking about the wicked and, um, and then you see the benefit of those who wait on the Lord or those who are in the Lord are not wicked um, shall inherit the land. So those are two lines that kind of contrast one another. Okay. That's it's interesting to hear this stuff because, you know, when you just read it, you don't pay no attention to this stuff. You just like, Oh, okay. But it's yeah. like, wait, there, this was intentional. Like there mm -hmm. was this, you know, it just wasn't something somebody just sitting there and just threw some, you know, how you just throw some words on paper. You're like, Oh, okay. That sound right. Uh you know, but it's like, no, they intentionally, it's like, I, what was that? Uh, I don't know if y'all remember, but you remember when we was in elementary school and they started teaching us about different poems and stuff like this. And the teacher would sit down and be like, now nah, I want y'all to write a poem in this style. Right. Write a poem in this style. And I can't remember all of the different names right now for some reason. Um, but yeah, and then we had to do, you know, all these poems, they had to have a certain cadence and all of that. And it's like these folks was really sitting here writing in a certain style for a reason, and and it, and it makes sense now. So now I'll never look at this stuff just again as if it's just oh they just wrote it. You know what I mean? Like there was yeah. there was some poetic inspiration behind it. So yeah, it's pretty dope. Yeah, yeah. So it really makes you analyze each line of poetry now you can see like, okay, well, that's that's the antithetic thought, you know, the line contract. It's just like when we were looking at Mark and we saw the um, inclusios and a story within a story, uh, but it gives you the main, it has one main point of that or whatever. And so, and then the chiasms, how it goes from A, B, C, D thought, and then it goes D, C, B, A thought. So it's, it's like, yeah, like a style of writing or whatnot. So yeah it just causes us to really slow down and to really understand and read scripture a little bit better. So we're just going deeper on, uh, on our level and increasing our capacity. I know that this is probably uncomfortable. So it's a uh, welcome um, being uncomfortable, just welcome it because it's going to just increase your capacity even more. Okay, stretching is uncomfortable. So we're gonna keep on stretching here. So the, uh, the next one is synthetic. Um, the synthetic is the second or perhaps later line completes or enlarges upon the thought of the first line. And so first line here says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. The second line is my holy heel. So uh, you're looking at the, the, the emphasis here is Zion. And then when you go drill down even more, it says my holy heel. So let's give you a more of a, a picture of, of Zion. And so the, the next one is the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making the wise simple. So the law of the Lord is the same as the decrees of the Lord. Um, and then um, the law is perfect, reviving the soul. And because of the reviving of the soul, it makes the wise simple. Okay. And then you get to climactic, a word that is built up built upon until a climax in thought is reached like a crescendo. So if you're musically inclined, you understand a, a crescendo is more of a buildup. So it comes from a, um, a low point and it kind of goes up to a high point. So that's kind of the crescendo effect. Um, it says in this one, it says, subscribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, the first line. And then the second line is ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength. So you come from one point here about old heavenly beings, but what's greater than heavenly beings is the glory of the Lord and his strength. So you see the, you see the buildup of that. <laughs> and then the last one is emblematic. Emblematic is a metaphor assembly in one line uh, is used to illustrate the truth of another line. So we're kind of figure, we're kind of familiar with similes or metaphors um, in the English language. So it usually starts or have the word like or as in it. Okay. So this one is as the deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. So um, and so as as David is is yearning for God. Um, he begins to, as he is hiding in the cave, he begins to see a deer going towards the water. And he, that gives him a, uh, a image of how much he yearns for God. He learned, he longs for God as the deer pants for the water. That's, we, that's what we know. Uh, as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs for you. And so that is an um, example of metaphor assembly. Okay. So any questions about that? about the, the methods or any comments? All right, we're moving right along then. So just keep these in mind. We're gonna uh, look at even more examples and things of that sort. And so now we are looking at the book of Job. So uh, go into, into your book. Uh, I think it's like 161 or something like that. 162 uh, in your book about uh, Job. It says, we're going to read the slide first. It says, Job is one of those books in the Old Testament in which we have simply no internal evidence about its author. The truth of the matter is that there is very little external evidence. As far as I'm concerned, we simply do not know who the author of this book is. All we have amounts to mere speculation. We have no more internal evidence about the place or date um, uh, the book was written. It does seem through an examination of internal evidence that the time of Job and the events covered in the book was during the paper patriarchal times, okay? So when we're looking, um, let's pull up this chart here. Um, the patriarchal times is over here between Genesis 1 through 11. Well, actually it's right. Uh, the patriarchal times actually start with Genesis 12, but they believe that um, Job uh, took place before, kind of before the patriarchal time between chapters 8 and 11. So right on the edge uh, of the pa patriarchal times there, um, they believe that um, Job took place. And so we're going to look at some, some clues or some hints in scripture that uh, will show us why we believe, why they believe that, um, that Job took place during, during that time there. Okay. Um, let's see here. Let's go into the book. It says that since the author of this book is not identified, it's not possible to determine authorship and the main in the date of uh, composition. Many men, including Moses and Job himself, have been suggested as authors. Um, generally speaking, conservative scholars believe that the, the, book, uh, the book was written in the days of King Solomon, though the man Job lived in patriarchal times. And so if they believe that King, written in the days of King Solomon, it definitely would eliminate Moses and Job <laughs> since they were not around during King Solomon's time. Okay, so um, 
So in the book, in the next paragraph, it says, Joel was a historical character. Um, and you see um, Ezekiel, he mentions Job in his writings and even James mentioned Job in his, in his writings as well. It says several facts indicate that he lived in those days after the flood of Noah and before the time of Moses. So now they're trying to drill down. It says first, the length of Job's um, life. Uh, let's shoot my page away. Um, the length of Job's uh, life uh, points to the time shortly after the flood in which men had long lifespans. So before the flood, they will live, they're living 800, 900 years. But Job, it says in chapter 42, at the end of, in, uh, at the end of 42, that Job lived to be uh, like 140 uh, years old. So uh, it's definitely after, after the flood, okay? Um, yeah, you see them 42, 42 and 6. And so, um, let, me, let me turn this on here. Keep jumping. And then second, it says, um, when you move down in the paragraph, it says, second, Job is seen functioning as a priest for his family, a typical role in the patriarchal days, okay? So uh, once Abraham comes on the scene during this period of time, there, uh, there was no Levitical priesthood. But when you're reading, when you're reading the, the book of Genesis, you'll see um, a lot of the mosaic terminology that is used in this book here. Um, and that's what Moses, he uses um, the terminology of, of priest or he'll use the terminology of tithing, um, but there was no such thing as tithing or, or, or priest, um, the priesthood during the time of Genesis, but you'll see that terminology being used. But with the book of Job, you don't see those type of terminologies um, being used, which which gives us an indicator that more than likely Moses did not write uh, this this book because Moses had a, a tendency of using uh, law terms in in his writings. Okay, um, and so um, Job um, functions, I guess we we will uh, understand as the priest of of covering his family in prayer. So we see that in the first. I believe it's the first chapter of Job that talks about him um, covering his kids and, and praying for his kids and things of that sort. That was a common thing to do in that time of patriarchal. Okay. Um, and then third, um, in the in the paragraph, it says Mosaic law, the Mosaic law and the important revelations of prophets are never referred to in all theological discussions of Job and his friends. It is highly unlikely that they will speak of God and his ways and never refer to authoritative scripture. If they existed at the time, uh, if they existed, existed at the time, the setting of uh, the book of Job is therefore in the days of the patriarch. The writing, however, uh, may have been much, much later, okay? And so when you get a chance to read the book of Job, Job, I, to me, is a hard read because of the fact that he's in this poetry mode from chapters to the four, you know, to, to the 40, uh, you got this poetry mode going and he just goes on and on and his friends go on and on. So it just kind of zones me out. It zones me out, but it might not zone you out. So but when you're reading um, about his claims and reading about his friends' claims, you don't see a lot of scripture or a lot of high level revelation that was that's given in the other old testament books you don't see that um in these books which give us an indicator of when kind of when these um when this book was written and you don't see um J uh Joshua or or I'm not not Joshua but you don't see David or any other writer um mention Job, but you'll see in a lot of the prophecy books, they, they will mention Job. And so that kind of gives us an indicator that it was probably written and, and um, distribute um, amongst during, during the time of the, of the prophets. So written during first and second Kings time, but distribute uh, probably in the uh, prophetic times there. Okay. Um, you see the little chart, the chart there um, in the book that shows us the, the life of Job 
um, took place in, the, uh, in Genesis, but it was written during the time of, of, of King Solomon, okay? So when we look at the purpose of Job, it says the book of Job addresses issues of, of the suffering of people who are righteous. If God is sovereign and loving, loving, then why does he permit his own to experience terrible and apparently needless sufferings? I believe the book of Job does provide some key spiritual components to answer to that question. But on the other hand, I believe Bible students must be careful not to become too tunnel focused on Job to the point that we miss the simple examples of Jesus uh, and the apostles teaching on the topic of suffering, okay? Because Jesus has more to say, the apostles have more to say about suffering versus the, the understanding and the knowledge that Job had about suffering and to understand the sovereignty of God. Because when you're reading the book of Job, um, they believe that if you're living a good life, then good things will happen and, and everything will be good. And if you're living a wicked life, that bad things should happen to you and things of that sort. And they're crying about um, living a good life, but yet wicked things are happening. And what kind of God is this that uh, allow wicked to fall upon his good service and all that stuff. But in, when we look at Jesus' uh, revelation about suffering, it don't matter who you are. If you you're you're prone to suffering even more when you belong to Jesus Christ, uh, we our scriptures tell us to to um, to be a part of Jesus' suffering for the sake of the gospel, and so we're going to experience even more uh, suffering for for the gospel, and then on top of that, just natural suffering as just being in a human being and living in a sinful world. And so, um, and so we have to be careful when we're extracting um, things from Job because we love it. Yet, uh, though they slay me, yet would I trust him? And we believe that Job was a patient man, and um, he didn't he didn't curse God and all that stuff. But when you begin to read the Book of Job, Job was not as humble as we as we make him to be because he thought that. Um, I was doing I was doing everything right, and this should not happen to me. He may say it though they slay me up, but I trust him. But then he turns around and he goes off about him uh, not being deserving of what was going on to him. You got to read. I'm telling you, it, it's something. It gives us a whole different perspective because we we got the understanding of Job as he was he was wealthy and rich, and and then Satan was walking to and fro trying to figure out who he gonna mess with. And God said, "Have you considered my servant?" And then uh, God allowed Satan to uh, intervene on on Job's life and strip him down to nothing. And then we got him uh, dealing with his friends. And then uh, then God shows up, and then he's blessed because he was uh, patient. And enduring and all that stuff, but y'all gotta. I'm telling you, I read the entire book of Job this week, and I was just like, "Oh, Job, you really thought you was that righteous?" And God had to come in and and set Job straight. And you'll see in Scripture that says Job was was speechless. Job couldn't utter a word to God because Job because uh, God had to set him straight about who he was. And then he had to tell Job who I am. I am God. I am sovereign. I can do whatever. And, and God did not give him a reason why he stripped him down. He just wanted for Job to trust him. It's something. It's something. <laughs> when you begin to read uh, the book of Job. Um, so I love when, um, like, in there, God starts questioning, like, where were you when I did this? <laughs> For about three or four chapters. Listen, I'm like, check he that chapter. dude. Right? <laughs> God is letting me have it. Where were yep. you, Joe? When I threw the stars in the sky, where were right, you, Joe? Right, I created the moon. Yeah, man. Oh. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh, I said, oh, okay, come on and let him have it. Let come him. on. And that's that same personality Jesus had. Oh. <laughs> he comes with it. He let you look. God, yeah, allowed, you? God allowed Job to cry for at least thirty some chapters, and then finally, God, come on in. 
and was like, okay, Joe, that's enough. That's enough. But even God, he spoke through a young man, Elihu. Because Elihu was getting irritated with those who could, uh, who were older than him and claimed to be more wise. And Elihu had to let them have it too. It was like, y'all claim to be wise, but respectfully, I'm coming to y'all and tell y'all, y'all, y'all talking a bunch of foolishness right now. <laughs> and he said, I'm coming under the, the unction of the, of the spirit of God right now. <laughs> well, you know, we still have those jobs today. We still do. We still do. We do. Oh, she's up. She's up. She's up. She's up. We complain about every little thing as if you ain't supposed to go through nothing. And when we don't know, when we don't know Father as we should know him, and there's some things you're going to go through because there's some things in you he got to deal with in order to get you to where he needs for you to be. But we have the audacity to say, you know, the Lord took this and he did that. And so Job still exists. And again, you know, like what Tammy said, where was you? <laughs> when he put the stars in the sky. So we must accept what God has has given for each and every one of us and be willing to channel through whatever God, whatever God has ordained for us to go through at whatever point in time we have to go through it. I lost greatly uh, many people in my life, but I have to stop and tell the people in my family, listen, they never belong to us. They always have belonged to God. Mm-hmm, yep. Yep. And so we can't we can't use what how Joe went through issues to be our conviction. We have to go. We have to go off of what God said, where Jesus is talking about how to deal with these struggles and how to deal with suffering and things of that sort. And the one thing that really I'm a very technical person or whatever. And the one thing that I have to be OK with when it comes to God is that he doesn't owe me an explanation of what he does. <laughs> his sovereignty there you go. that preach right there <laughs> he That's <laughs> because we want to answer why i'm going through this lord why i don't owe you nothing all i ask for you is just to trust me <laughs> oh. amen oh. amen now <laughs> Ooh, that well, right there. I, I get nervous because I hear some people in their arrogance saying, when I get to heaven, God's going to have some explaining to do about this. And I'm like, where were you not creating stuff? <laughs> <laughs> where were you? He ain't got to say nothing to you, but get it well done. All right, you made it. Go on now. The audacity. <laughs> the audacity. And it makes me nervous for them when I hear them spout stuff like that i'm like who are you that, got, that god's got some explaining to do oh mm -hmm. man yeah <laughs> yeah good luck on that good seriously <laughs> yep so yeah it's it's something so i encourage you to read the reader um the book of job um so let's look at the special considerations and it says that um let me make sure I'm on the right. Uh, let's see here. Oh, okay. Uh, I have some other notes here real quick. Uh, it says, Joe represents a time in ancient history model of suffering. Um, I kind of talked about it. Joe no longer represents the ideal picture of suffering for us today. And so we must be mindful when um, and who wrote this book um, uh, and how the church should interpret um, this book. Okay. Um, Yep. Okay. So let's go here. So it must be remember on the slide, it says it must be remembered that the speakers in this book of Job did not have direct revelations of Moses uh, or the prophets to rely on. Therefore, they were limited in their knowledge on numerous subjects and the progress of God's revelation in the centuries they will, uh, that would follow a much clearer understanding of God and his purposes would be possible. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that they had a low level of revelation okay i'm gonna pull up this chart again down here at the bottom here help you see my mouse they had a low level of revelation about god versus the time of moses it was it was definitely greater and it was progressing and then we're here we're at the top so why are we using low level revelation to it to uh instruct us and guide us 
versus we have God, we have God's mind up here. Jesus gave us the highest uh, interpretation and the highest point of God's revelation. So why are we still using low level revelation to, to guide our lives? And so it's basically what, one thing that we have to learn is to, to, to look at the progressiveness of God. God operated in this way here, um, dealing with these, um, these men. And we have to see how God dealt with Israel when it came to suffering. And then we have to understand how he dealt, how he dealt uh, with the church when it comes to suffering. And then we have to make sure that um, we're interpreting it correctly so that we know how to deal with suffering. Okay. So it's, it's, it's definitely looking at it through the lens of God's progressive revelation as he continued during the time to reveal himself of who he was. So Job only had a glimpse of who God was, but now we have the fullness through his word of who God is and what he expects and what he doesn't like and what he likes and how he's going to deal with us when dealing with certain situations in our lives. Okay. So that's something to, to really um, keep in mind there. Okay. And so I wanted to show as well that the um, book of Job was written during the time of uh, the dispensation of human government. Okay. So it was right before promise. And so it was, it was written dur during this time here, but we're over here, we're under grace. And so we have so much more uh, information um, about God and his uh, revelated word. Okay. So when you're looking at the sum, uh, summary of Job, you're going to look at the dilemma of Job, and then you're going to look at the debates of Job, um, and then you're going to look at the deliverance deliverance of Job, okay? Um, there was some section in the book. I kind of talked about it, but I wanted to just kind of read it real quick. I'm doing really good time. Okay, so um, in, under the summary part, the third paragraph, um, it said, it starts with uh, three of Job's friends heard these events and came to see Job. The majority of the book is taken up with their discussions about Job's suffering. Okay, so about 30 some chapters, we're reading, we're reading them going back and forth with one another, uh, talking, um, trying to give Job some advice or comfort or whatever. It wasn't really comforting. Um, and so it says in the three rounds of speeches, of the three friends discussed and often debated with Job the reason for Job's condition. Though much was said by these three men, their basic argument can be simply stated. They saw these events in Job's life as out of the realm of the ordinary. This was the hand of God. They reasoned that truly righteous people are not punished by God, whereas wicked men are punished by him. Therefore, since God was clearly punishing Job, he must not be truly righteous, but guilty of secret sin. So that's what you read about. They're like, Job, you had to have done something for God to turn on you like this. Like, you're not telling us something, uh, Job. So assuming Job's guilt, they encourage him to confess his sinfulness and to be restored by God. Job responded to these three friends by protesting that his innocence and rebuking his friends for not giving him answers or comfort. And then the next paragraph um, I have highlighted, it says, after these three rounds of speeches concluded, a younger man, Elihu, appeared and discussed his observations of Job's situation and the reasoning of his three friends. Elihu came closer to the truth than the others. He rebuked Job for justifying himself before God, and he rebuked Job's friends for taking a great deal, but uh, a great deal, but exhibiting no wisdom. <laughs> Elihu pointed out that suffering can be for instructions rather than for punishment. Woo-wee. That's a statement right there. And then God broke the silence in <laughs> 38 and revealed himself to Job. So that means God was giving more revelation to Job about who he was. Okay. And so um, any questions or comments about Job? We're good. I have one minute to spare. I did good. 10, 29. 
I did real good. On Monday, we got out 10 minutes early. Hey, so I'm doing, trying to do good. This is only the only time I probably finish on time. <laughs> you must have got out early on Monday because I missed class. My yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, uh, seven, uh, what was it? Uh, what, seven, five, let's see, 630, 730. So we got out at 7.20. Seven. I gotta come in. I gotta come yeah, and cut that, up that to fill that time in. I, I gotta come in and cut up so I can fill that gap in right there. Oh no. Are you <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> there was nobody cutting up. Nobody, nobody cutting up. They, y'all must wasn't asking no questions. Y'all wasn't making no comments. Y'all just let her talk. <laughs> we had a few questions and comments, uh-huh. but you know. <laughs> You are a little extra, so you know. <laughs> Just saying. God bless your life, Pastor. Well, on that note, God, uh, God be praised. <laughs> on that note, uh, next week we're going to look at the book of Psalms, Proverbs, and possibly uh, Ecclesiastes. So we'll see how far we get, but prep for those three Psalms. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then the following week we'll do Songs of Solomon and Lamentations. So, um, so if there aren't any questions or comments, I will close out class. Um, yeah, Father God, we thank you for this day. Thank you, oh God, for your word. I'm so grateful that we ha- we are living in a time when we have greater revelation about you, Father. We have the written scriptures. We have accounts. Um, about how you operate, Father. And so, God, um, learning about your word moves us from a point of just saying it's in the Bible. It's it's in the Bible, but it's allowing us to understand when you said it and and how you said it and who were you dealing with, Father, and allow us to understand your progressiveness, Father, on how you move and you operate, Father, um, through, through your word, Father. So we thank, thank you, God, that you are constantly moving us, Father, um, to understand the fullness of your word, Father. Um, continue, God, to give us illumination, Father, as we continue to study your word, Father, so that we can um, obtain the mind of Christ and understand the things of the spirit and to, um, to read and understand your thoughts, Father. So, God, we love you and we bless you. Uh, I pray that you will continue to bless those who are um, studying and enduring, God. And I pray that they will not give up, God, in their well-doing, Father. So, God, I lift you up and I bless you and I give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll see you all next week. Thank you. Good class. Thank you.